This morning, we want to turn our attention to the third chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter number three. And the scripture simply declares, for everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made, um, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them uh, than, they to, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor taken from it. God has done it so that people fear, uh, so that people before him, people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Uh, just for a few moments, I would love to preach uh, from the subject title, A Poem with a Purpose. A Poem with a Purpose. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that you give us to get into your word. Lord, I've been saying this weekly, but this isn't the prayer of my heart. God, when your word is preached, your voice is heard. God, please give me clarity to preach your word today. God, allow me, God, to be able to boldly and passionately communicate the truth. But Lord, we believe that the Holy Spirit is the greatest teacher, God. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us and guide us into all truth. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Um, it has been said that through the corridors of sleep, Past shadows dark and deep, my mind dances and leaps in confusion. I don't know what is real, I cannot touch what I feel, and I hide behind the shield of my illusion. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. To play the king or the pawn, for the line is thinly drawn between joy and sorrow. So my fantasy becomes reality, and I must be what I must be and face tomorrow. So I'll continue to continue to pretend that my life will never end and flowers never bend with the rainfall. Uh, for the young pups in the room, those lyrics are from a song by Simon and Garfunkel. 
Um, Paul Simon uh, was the one who penned those words. And I don't know whether Paul Simon had ever read the Bible or even the book of of Ecclesiastes specifically, but we know that he and the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, took the time to reflect on how you and I will spend the time that God has given us. Though the song was written over 50 years ago and though uh, the the book of Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes was written much longer ago, when we hear these words from that song and when we hear the words in our text this morning, it is a reminder that many of us live life with what I consider an escapist mindset, an escapist mindset. An escapist is someone who doesn't want to deal with reality. An escapist is someone who is unwilling to deal with reality. An escapist is someone who wants to live based upon their dreams and their wishes and their fantasies. If you are an escapist, you will do whatever you can do to avoid facing reality. Uh, For me, I think all of us have a little bit of an escapist in us uh, tomorrow. Uh, When that uh, alarm clock goes off, you're going to hit the snooze button and you're going to try to escape reality. But you're going to have to deal with it before too long. As we consider our text this morning, we can be certain of this, to be certain of this, that while the person sitting next to you might not know what is going on in your head or in your heart, the person next to you might not know what kind of week you had, the person may not know what kind of hurts you've experienced or what kind of fears you possess, the person sitting next to you may not know the deepest struggles in your heart, but here's the truth. We can rest on a truth this morning that we have a God who made us. We have a God who knows us. We have a God who knows where we are. We have a God who knows what we need. We have a God who knows what we're thinking. We have a God who knows how we feel each and every day. God knows the struggles that are currently facing our lives. The struggles uh, that many of us have, even this morning, with how can we make sense of life as it has been presented to us. Uh, The longer we live, the more we understand that the life that we thought that we would probably live is not the life that God has planned for us. And as we live this life, it's hard for us at moments to juggle with the realities of what I've expected from life and and what God has given me in my life. Uh, One of the reasons why we love the Bible and specifically why we are preaching this passage this morning is uh, the passage addresses life in such a way that we get practical help for our lives. I love it because it, it addresses the text in such a way that it brings into account the fact that some of us are single and struggling with us. It brings into account uh, my marital status. It brings into account my work status. It brings into account my pursuit for the job. It brings into account my desire for the marriage. It brings into account my desire for the children. It brings into account every aspect of my life. And when you see the text, it also brings up the reality that there can be frustrations in my life. I love the text because in a a very specific way, it addresses past disappointments and even future doubts because it allows us to see how how we have been called to live a life that is ultimately pleasing to God. When you look at our text, we see a very clear reminder Or we see a very clear warning that you and I must get past living a life that is secluded and cut off from God's truth. When you think about it from this perspective, you and I will always be an open book to God. 
You, you may have figured out how to put on your Sunday best. You may have figured out how to fake it till you make it. You may have figured out how to play the game. But to God, we will always be an open book. I, I like to look at it this way, that God is in heaven looking down at me saying, I know you. This is kind of how I talk to myself. I'm like, God is like, I know you, bro. I know your struggles. I know your desires. I know your fears, your weaknesses, the things that make you excited. I know every aspect of your life. Not just the Sunday morning, Thomas. Not just uh, the professional uh, person that you meet on campus. But God sees me. God knows me. And God knows everything that my heart desires. I, I, I want to go, go out on a, just a tangent quickly and simply say that since God knows us, there's no reason for me to try to be something that I'm not. Since God sees every aspect of my life, and since God has invited me to live the abundant life, we must accept that one of the greatest blessings in a relationship with Christ is that I am fully accepted by God, meaning that I don't have to perform for God. I don't have to impress God, but God is simply waiting that I trust him at a deeper level. I'll say it again. Because at this point, I really feel like anytime I get to this, I want to try to weave it into any sermon that I give. God is not waiting on you to impress him. God is not impressed by how much money you give or how much money you have or how many ministries you serve on or how many times you come to church or how many people you save as if you can save anybody. God is not impressed with that. But on the other side of that, I want to say very clearly what God is waiting on from everyone under the sound of my voice, even the one who's speaking this morning. God is waiting that we trust him at a deeper level. Some people will probably say, "Okay, T said, I get it. I trusted Christ when I became a Christian. Um, I placed my faith in Jesus. I was born again. So now what? If that's you this morning, I want to say praise God that you place your faith and your trust in Christ when you were saved. But let me ask you this question. Do you think that there's ever a time in your life when you should stop trusting Christ? Like I'm married. And do you think that after we got done with the wedding ceremony, that, 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 that my love was consistent up until the ceremony? And as soon as we ended the ceremony, I stopped loving my wife. That makes no sense. Uh, we, we have four kids. Does it make sense that while we were at St. Mary's and when we, were, when we delivered, when my, well, when my wife delivered the child, <laughs> would it make sense to feed the child at St. Mary's and as soon as you leave St. Mary's to no longer feed the child? That makes sense. Well, if our relationship with Christ was initiated through trust, Uh, Should we not understand that the relationship with Christ continues to flourish by trusting Christ at a deeper level? When when I think about it, this this is kind of how my mind works as I prepare my sermons. Like, before I can talk to you, I got to talk to myself and I got to ask myself, Thomas, yes, you've trusted Christ for your salvation, but are you trusting Christ in every area of your life? Am I trusting Christ with how I live my life? Am I trusting Christ with how I operate on my job? Am I trusting Christ with how I manage my money? 
Am I trusting Christ with how I treat my spouse? Am I trusting Christ with how I raise my kids? Am I trusting Christ with how I treat the people in my life who can do nothing for me? Am I trusting Christ with how I respond to the people in my life who have done me harm? It is truth that we must accept that God is not waiting on you to, tr- to, to imp- God is not waiting that you impress him. But ultimately, God desires that you trust him at a deeper level. And that will always be true as long as we are on this side of heaven. Let, let me get back to Ecclesiastes before Brian sends me an email. But when, when, I, when I look at the text, when I look at the text, we must understand that we are an open book to God. Now, here's the great thing about it. Since we are an open book to God, God wrote a book to us called the Bible. And in writing the book of the Bible to us, God gives us practical help in our lives that can be applied. As we look at our text this morning, we know that the poem is purposeful because, number one, it gives us a picture of the progression of life. Verse one says again, for everything uh, there is a season and a time under uh, under under um, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up and so forth and so on. Uh, some have said that uh, chapter 3 goes back to a pessimistic understanding or a pessimistic perspective in life. But reading chapter 1, chapter 3, verse number 1, we should immediately see something different. And the first two chapters, the, the consistent phrase that we see is life under the sun. But now we see a transition where the author is telling us more about life under heaven. Um, we got to understand and remember that if we take life simply under the sun, the S-U-N, then we see things from a limited perspective. Last week we talked about how we must live life under the sun, the S-O-N, meaning that we are to live life under the authority and the power of Jesus. When we simply see life under the S-U-N, we have a limited perspective. But when we see life under heaven, we see things from God's perspective. I I love the author because he unpacks a very powerful truth for us in verses 1 through 8. He essentially is telling us that God reigns and rules over every aspect of life. When you read the first eight verses, we must conclude that the words are not uh, not just poetic, but they are powerful because they give us a reminder of the sovereignty of God. Uh, Just from a literary perspective, what we have in the first eight verses is called mirrorism. It's called mirrorism. It is a figure of speech where two polarities uh, make up a whole, uh, taking um, everything into account. Look at it from this perspective. Taking birth to death comprises the whole of human existence. Uh, Taking weeping and laughter covers the full range of human emotion. Uh, There is a comprehensive list. There are 14 things that are mentioned, which are 14 is 277. Biblically is the number of perfection. So really you see a, a picture of a perfect and complete life that the section addresses. Everything from birth to death, from war to peace, and everything in between. What, what the first eight verses are essentially communicating to us is that God is in control. It's trying to remind us that there is not an aspect of your life where God is not in control of it. 
God knows when you're going to graduate, when you're going to take the job, when you're going to retire. God has everything under control from the cradle to the grave. Life's timetable, catch this, is controlled by God. Now, some of us, we would prefer a a God or a deity that is one-dimensional. We prefer to think about God as just giving us the good, and then all that bad stuff comes from the devil, right? We don't want to even consider the fact that God would allow someone to die. We don't want to even consider the fact that God would allow me to lose my job. We don't want to consider the fact that God would allow certain things to mold me and shape me. Rather than seeing God as, 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 as sovereign, we want to just see God as doing the planting and the building, but we don't want to see God doing the uprooting and the tearing down. We must understand as we mature in our faith that God is not either or, but God is both and depending upon his divine timetable. It's at this point that we get a little uncomfortable because everybody under the sound of my voice wants to be in control. Now, now some of us, this guy included, we struggle more with the control aspect. But there's not a person under my voice who does not struggle on some level with wanting to be in control. And the first eight verses are just a reminder that God is in control. So first, the poem has purpose because it tells us about the progression of life. But secondly, the poem has purpose because it gives us the proper perspective for life. Verse 9 says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the uh, the business that God has given uh, to the children of man to be busy with. Um, As we studied the passage, I believe that it is extremely important and helpful for me to say that simply accepting that God is in control does not necessarily mean we will always understand or appreciate God's timing. I want to say that again. It's important. I want to say just because we accept that God is in control, that does not necessarily mean we will always understand or appreciate his timing. This means that there are times in my life where God is in control And I don't always understand what God's doing. There are times in my life where I know God is in control and it can seem as if God is not doing what I want him to do. There are times in my life where I will be torn between a God who is in control and also frustrated with how life is playing out. Uh, In our text, uh, it is affirming uh, the beautiness of God being sovereign over time, but it is also, and this is why I love the Bible, it is, it is addressing a dilemma that we all face. Go with me to verse 11 one more time. The B portion says, also, he has put eternity in man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Here the author finds himself caught between time and eternity. On one hand, God has put eternity in our hearts. We were made to live forever. We were made to live in unended fellowship with God. Uh, Many of the most precious promises from God are promises that are everlasting, from an everlasting God who has given us an everlasting covenant. And God keeps his covenant promises because he was faithful to restore what was broken through the blood of Jesus. 
And while it is true that we have been blessed with Jesus, the trouble that we have and the trouble that we face is still a real reality. There is a gap between what God has promised and what we will experience. Uh, Theologians talk about the already and the not yet. We are already saved. We are already redeemed. But we are not not yet where we will one day be when we get to heaven. The eternity uh, in our hearts gives us, the the fact that God has placed eternity on our heart, it gives us a deep desire to know what God has done and what God is currently doing. Uh, There's a quote by Walter Kaiser that says, each of us is born with a deep-seated desire, I think it's on the screen, a compulsive drive to know the character, composition, and meaning of the world and and to discern its purpose and destiny. But as finite creatures living in a finite world, there are so many things that we will never truly be able to understand. And since we can't always understand every aspect of life, it is easy to become frustrated in life. And as we deal with these frustrations, we must understand that the frustration is the result of a God-given burden. God was, was, was intentional by making everything beautiful. When God created the world, it was perfect. When God created man, we were in a perfect state. When God created us, we were created in his image, but now we live in a broken world. And now, since we live in a broken world, we have to deal with unfulfillment and lack of purpose. In terms of fulfilling your purpose, I want to say this very clearly. There is no relationship that is man-made There is nothing on this earth apart from God that will fulfill your purpose, that will give you satisfaction, that will give you fulfillment. It won't be found in a spouse or a child or a lover or a title or an experience or a goal or a status. None of those things will be able to satisfy us and none of those things will be able to give us purpose. Even religious activities will not fulfill the deepest longings of our heart. The issue is that many of us, myself, I'm preaching to myself, Thomas Settles tries to address the burden that God has given me with things that will never be able to satisfy me. Not only, I said this a couple weeks ago, a better version of you is not going to make you happy, but a greater experience in life will not make you happy. Better use of your time is not going to make you fulfilled. So rather than trying to cope with life by laughing more or drinking more or achieving more or trying to fulfill myself more, I got to be reminded that I was created for eternity. I was created to be in God's presence. I will always be, hear this, I will always be unsatisfied as long as I'm apart from God. I will always wrestle with uneasiness and frustration as long as I am not living in fellowship with God. That is why John 17, 3, very simple verse says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Purpose in life, hear this very clearly, is found in knowing God and making God known. Purpose is not found in finding and taking a Myers-Briggs test and getting the job that you want. 
Purpose is not found in winning a certain accomplishment. Purpose is not found in a certain marital status. Purpose is not found in living in a certain neighborhood. Purpose is not found in driving a certain car. Purpose is not found apart from God. And when you look at the text, it should not surprise us that when we, when I say we, I'm talking about Thomas, when I intentionally turn away from God, and I look to the world for substitutes, I should not be surprised that I end up being frustrated in every aspect of my life. It should not surprise me when I choose to turn away from God who is in the light and I end up being frustrated with the darkness of my life. I want to be very clear here. It should not surprise me when I choose to be disobedient to God And when I'm unable to be in fellowship with God because of unrepented sin, catch this, because of my disobedience to God and my lack of fellowship with God, I end up being frustrated with God and frustrated with life. Why? Because I was created to know God and I was created to make God known. And catch this, if I reject that, I'm accepting a life that will lack purpose and fulfillment and peace. Uh, Since I'm here, let me just go ahead and just step on in this morning. (laughs) If I'm at home and I choose to get on the computer and I type something in the search engine that I know is disobedient to God, the result is going to be lack of fulfillment and frustration. It shouldn't surprise me when the scriptures tell me to love my wife like Christ loved the church. And rather than loving her, I'm rude to her. It should not surprise me that the fruit of my disobedience is unfulfillment and frustration in my marriage. It should not surprise me when I go to work trying to please people, trying to please man, trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to allow success from the world's perspective to drive me. It should not surprise me when I go to the job every day frustrated and unfulfilled because here's the truth. God has placed a burden on my heart and since God has placed that burden on my heart, only God can satisfy the burden. I love the Mission Impossible movies. They're cheesy, they're lame. Tom Cruise is not a great actor, but I just enjoy the movies. It never fails that there's going to be a part of the movie where there's going to be some kind of special encryption and they can't get the encryption. They're going to find a substitute to be able to break the encryption. Right? If the encryption needs a voice, uh, they're going to find a substitute. If the encryption needs a body scan, they're going to find a substitute. If it needs a retina scan, they're going find to a, find a substitute. Uh, in the movie, whatever they got to do, they will always find the substitute. And I want to help us all this morning. I want to say very clearly, the burden that God has laid upon us will never be addressed by any man-made substitute. Satan tries his best to get us to think that the substitutes of life will satisfy us. But the substitutes will never replace God. Satan will have you think that sex is going to break the encryption. The relationship is going to break the encryption. A better version of me is going to break the encryption. A better job is going to break the encryption. 
Um, a, a more fulfilling career is going to break the encryption. A bigger house is going to break the encryption. A better car is going to break the encryption. A, a losing that three, three or four more pounds is going to break the encryption. And, and I know it's not proper English, but I'm going to say it like this. There ain't no substitutes for God. There is never a substitute for God in your life. And until we understand and accept that we have a burden, we have a hole that only God can fill, we're going to be frustrated because we're constantly trying to fill the hole with things that only God can fill. On another level, as a believer, as a Christian, when you get to class tomorrow, get to work tomorrow, uh, this is why we should show grace to people. To people who are going to show up tomorrow, there's a whole, hoop, whole group of people, hopefully not y'all, because we got the right perspective, right? But there's a whole group of people who are going to show up tomorrow upset because the weekend couldn't satisfy. All last week, they were living for the weekend. They were living for, matter of fact, some people got a three-day weekend this weekend. They're going to be happy. They get tomorrow, but Tuesday they're going to show up still frustrated and unfulfilled because drinking couldn't satisfy, smoking couldn't satisfy, sex couldn't satisfy, Instagram couldn't satisfy, social media couldn't satisfy. They're going to wake up unsatisfied and, and unfulfilled because there are no substitutes for God. That's why Augustine said very powerfully, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Say it again. God has made us for himself, and our heart will always be restless until it finds its rest in God. I want to share a universal truth this morning. I want to step out on a limb and just say this. While there's a lot of people here who I've never met you. I've never had the privilege of, of speaking with you. And um, I don't know your name. I don't know your location. I don't know your story. I don't know your age or your IQ or even your income. But here's what I know about you. I know that you have a burden that has been laid on you by God. I know that you have a restlessness in your life that has been laid on you by the Lord. And God has designed you so that you will never, ever find rest until you find the rest in the Lord. Now, some people would take that, and hear me clearly, some people would take that and think, man, is God mean? Is God playing a game with me? Is God like this, this angry, uh, mean grandpa who's like playing this joke? It's not what I'm trying to communicate. The reason why God, I want you to catch this, the reason why God allows us to know that we have burdens in our life is not simply so that God can be the burden maker, but so that God can be the burden taker. God wants us to get to a place to where we are willing to give him the burden, where we are willing to share with him those hard moments. Think about it this way. I know most guys are like this. I know I'm like this. When you get home from Walmart or Publix or, uh, or Kroger, you don't want to take but one trip from the car to the house, right? <laughs> hey. But you, you'll cut off all the circulation in your hand trying to get them back, right? If, if I'm empty-handed, it's no need for me to ask my wife or my kids for help. But when I, when I have a lot in my hand, it makes me more mindful that I can ask for help. God is not trying to punish you or hurt you, but God places things 
for you to carry to remind you that you need the Lord. And here's the greatest thing about God. He doesn't just give you the load, but God helps you carry the loads of life. So we know that the poem has purpose because it tells about the progression of life. We know that the poem has purpose because it gives us the perspective for life. And lastly, we know that the poem has purpose because it gives us a new possibility in life. Verse 12 says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man or woman. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That, that which is already has been, that which is to be has already been, and God seeks what has been driven away. When I have the right perspective in life, it gives me new possibilities in my life. When we understand that we are not really in control, when we get to a place where we understand that I can only find fulfillment and satisfaction in God, then I get to verse 14 and I can conclude that God doesn't simply have a plan, but God's plan needs no correction. Say it again. When I have the proper perspective, God is in control. When I understand that only God can satisfy, then I get to the place where I understand that God has a plan. It's not just that I accept the plan. I also accept that God's plan does not need my revision. God's plan does not need my correction. So that means if God's plan for me in this season of life is to be single, it does not need correction. And God's plan for me in, in this season of my life means that I'm not in a job that I desire, that's okay for me. If God's plan is that I stay in Athens and I know I want to leave, I know I want to get out of here, or if, or, or if my plan is I want to stay in Athens forever, but God is calling me away, as long as we figure out what's God, what God's plan is, it's okay and it does not need any correction. When I get to the place in my life where I can trust God's plan, then it really doesn't matter what we do. When I have the attitude that I am finite and insignificant apart from God, I come to understand that my significance will always be found in Christ. I come to understand that my significance is not in what I do or I don't do. My identity doesn't come in my job, but my identity comes from the one who gave his life for me. And when I understand that Christ gave his life for me, then I begin to understand that I don't exist for myself, but I exist for one who is bigger than myself. If life is about self, I will be frustrated, I will be upset, I will be held hostage with this unfortunate reality of trying to find satisfaction in the darkness. But if I find my satisfaction and purpose in God, life won't be easy and God won't give me whatever I want but my life will have purpose and my life will be lived to, in, to accept a glorious invitation from the Lord. Verse 12 says, I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. When my perspective is right, catch this, I can experience joy and I can do good. When joy is present in my life, 
it will produce humility in my life. When I have joy, when I understand that I need to stand in amazement of what Christ has accomplished for my life, when I understand my sin and my brokenness, when I understand that God should not have done anything for me, but God has done everything that I need through Christ, when I get to a place where I accept the the, the risen Savior who loved me and gave himself for me, it brings me to a place of humility because I understand I did not do anything to deserve what Christ has done for me. Doing good provides some security. When my, when my life is focused on serving others, serving God and serving others, it protects me from trying to live a life of building wealth and significance and fame for myself. When I come to a place where I realize that my time, my talent, and my treasures are for doing good in God's kingdom, then I can experience the abundant life that God has for me. Chris, you can come on back up. I'm going to close. Today we have just three very, very simple points of application. And uh, we're going to end with a time of prayer today. Number one, when we think about the passage and what it's communicating, we've got to get to a place where we are able to trust that God is in control. I know that seems simple. I know that seems minor. But when I can confess that God is in control, it brings me to a place of, of, of no longer trying to take control of my life. No longer trying to decide and figure it out and make it work and make it happen. I need to get to a place in my life where I can trust that I have a good God who is in control. Secondly, we need to trust that God can meet our deepest needs. Life is hard. Um, and life, life is really good, but life is also really, really hard. I think sometimes in church we get to this place where um, we, we don't want to let our guard down. We don't want to let, let them see you sweat. We don't, let people, we don't want people to see a struggle. But I hope this is a place where we can be honest about our struggles. hope this is a place where we can be real about frustrations with life, frustrations with God. Because if we just show up and put on the mask and smile and, and we leave out of here, we'll be broken and we'll be empty. But when we, when we do life together, when we really trust one another, when we really lean on each other and depend on each other, when I can go to my brothers and my sisters and tell them what's really going on in my life and they can pray for me so I'm healed, when I can confess my sins with others, then I can find fulfillment and satisfaction because I'm turning to God versus turning to myself. Satan, once again, he's going to always have those substitutes. When you leave here today, Satan's going to offer you a substitute. But I pray that we remember that God is too good to be copied. Like God is too amazing to be recreated by something that is temporal and unfulfilling. And lastly, to get ready to close, I need to trust that God can work in me, but God also wants to work through me. One of the things that um, the Lord is helping me with is casting a greater picture for our church. So yes, I hope and pray that each week 
you're inviting people. I hope that you you are telling people about our church. I hope you are. I hope we have a a, a culture of inviting people to church. But greater than that, I hope that we have a culture of every minister, every member being a minister. Every person here has an opportunity to have an impact for God's kingdom. Wherever you are, and I know y'all get tired of me saying this, but I'm going to keep on saying it. Wherever you are, God has strategically placed you there to be salt and light. So if that's a job, if that's a neighborhood, if that's a career, wherever you are, I know everybody's not full-time in ministry vocationally, but I believe that every opportunity is a true ministry opportunity. And, and the more I can take the perspective of, okay, God, how do you want to work in me? But God, how do you want to work through me? It changes the game. It keeps me and protects me from living this meaningless, unfulfilling, and uninspiring life. But when I get to the place where I understand, you know what, God? That person that's in my study group, that person that's on my kids' ball team, that person who's on my, as a coworker on my job, God, is that a person that you want me to share the gospel with? God, is that a person you want me to disciple? God, is that a person who maybe needs to, some, some prayer? Maybe their kids don't go to church. Maybe I can take their kids to church and love their kids well, and they're loving their kids well, I'm loving the parents well. I don't know what that looks like, but I believe that we all have the responsibility to not just bring them to church and not just bring them to hear Thomas, but I really believe that God wants to use you right where you are. And when I think about that, that gets me, it gets me excited. It gets me excited because we want to see the gospel of Jesus transform every aspect of life in every part of the world. And if that's going to happen, it's not going to happen by people just hearing from me, but it's going to happen by you living out the mission and the vision of Christ.